You're listening to the Conversations Speaking With podcast. I'm Josh Nicholas. What can governments do to stop increasing obesity rates? Help people save or get them to file their tax returns on time? The answers to these questions used to be some kind of tax or penalty. Just make people pay more and they'll do the right thing, right? But what if you could encourage certain behaviours without forcing the issue? That's where nudges come in. These are small changes in the design or presentation of something, like putting healthy food near the cash register. Harvard professor Cass Sunstein literally wrote the book on nudges with his colleague Richard Thaler. I spoke with Professor Sunstein about nudges and public policy, when and where they work, and how policymakers should use them. We spoke on the sidelines of a recent conference in Sydney, so that's why there's a little background noise. Uh, Behavioural economics is about um, what human beings do and how they think. And so standard economics for decades said that people make fully rational decisions. So if they get addicted to cigarettes or if they uh, get themselves in economic trouble or if they uh, lose their jobs, well, that was their rational decision. And what behavioral economists do is to say that we're not irrational, but we sometimes uh, emphasize tomorrow rather than next year. Uh, we sometimes have issues with self-control. Uh, 90% of drivers have been found to think they're better than the average driver. Uh, sometimes we don't assess risk so well. We exaggerate some risks because an incident came to mind, like you know, we heard Ebola happened somewhere, and then we get really scared we're going to get Ebola. We didn't hear much about say, traffic accidents, but the risk is actually not small for traffic accidents. And uh, these are ways that people's judgments uh, depart from perfect rationality. One of the things that you often come across when you read about behavioral economics or you hear people talk about it is this idea that, okay, it's a rationality, but it's sort of like a consistent rationality or it's a predictable one. So, so for example, one you just mentioned was that we feel losses more than we, we feel gains. And, that, and that's something that we can find sort of and replicate. Why are there these predictable irrationalities almost? So one just notation is I don't think any uh, behavioral economist says that people are irrational. And in fact, uh, the most prominent behavioral economists have been very clear that irrational isn't the right word. Maybe we would describe one of our family members as irrational, or but uh, human beings as such, they depart from perfect rationality, but uh, it's a little harsh and it's not really accurate to say they're irrational. And you're, you're quite right to say that the kind of excitement is that the departures from perfect rationality are uh, systematic rather than random, so that um, people you know, on average think that tomorrow and today really matter and the next year and the year after much less. And we tend to be averse to losses, that the prospect of losing X amount of money really upsets people and the prospect of gaining that same amount of money doesn't thrill them, which is one reason why when a sports team loses, people are often really, really sad. And why, when their sports team wins, they're merely really happy, not really, really happy. And that seems to be a systematic 
uh, feature. I don't think there's complete clarity on why the departures from perfect rationality exist. Probably the best um, uh, speculations uh, point to evolution. So if there's a creature, let's say, long, long ago, who's kind of homo sapiens just getting started, if you are being chased by a tiger, you better think about what's happening now. And the next decade doesn't matter so much. You're um, uh, going to be very focused on the immediate threat. And that's uh, evolutionarily desirable. Though for us now, when life expectancies are a lot longer, to focus on the immediate threat only and neglect the future uh, isn't, isn't, that, isn't, isn't great. Um, if you are in an early stage of evolution, if you lose part of what you have, you might starve or die. So to be very focused on uh, keeping what you've got is super important. And uh, gaining something would be good, but it might be uh, less likely to make the difference between survival and not than avoiding a loss. So loss aversion has an evolutionary explanation. Uh, unrealistic optimism also has an evolutionary explanation that if you are optimistic, even unrealistically so, you can uh, experience uh, greater well-being in a way that is uh, uh, helpful for getting stuff done. If you feel things are going to work out okay, it's going to go fine, then that, that helps people be productive. So there's reason to think that um, unrealistic optimism is actually adaptive for the human species and the canine species and the equine species also, though I don't know if there's data on dog and horse optimism. Is there, is there some scope for social construct in this as well? Like I remember a couple of years ago there was lots of excitement about a link between some language groups and like increased savings and the, the theory went that you know some language groups they when they talk about the future and the present they're a lot harder they, they split it a lot harder and so these people focus more on this. It's a great question. So the dominant behavioral findings are in general, I'm going to generalize here, uh, characteristic of human beings and not about of cultural groups. Um, people do care about fairness. I'll give you one example where cultural differences have been studied. They, they care about fairness and they're willing to sacrifice economic self-interest in order to be fair and to punish self unfairness. So if we see someone acting unfairly, we will uh, react even if we lose something as a result. But there, not every nation is the same on that. Uh, some countries show a greater focus on uh, combating unfairness than others. And there's one, I think, very obscure culture where we don't even see focus on fairness. People are just completely self-interested. Show me the money. Um, uh, I know the paper you're referring to, which suggests that uh, if you have language for the short term and long term or something that's associated with savings behavior, uh, it's a very interesting study. Um, how much difference is linguistic or cultural with respect to, let's say, self-control or consideration of the long term? Uh, we need to know a lot more. Um, uh, right now, what we know is that uh, enough people are, uh, I guess the right word is suffering from present bias, that to try to do something about it is a good idea. As you said, the really exciting thing is that it seems to be systematic, or at least some of them are systematic, which obviously then can we can jump on and private interests or the government or whoever can start to think, okay, 
if if there are these systematic deviations from rationality, let's say, we can we can address them. Can you go into a bit about that? Yes. So uh, I was privileged to work in the Obama administration for four years and uh, to have a a connection with the uh, U.S. government for many other years. And uh, to know this material is an opportunity to help. So if you have a program, for example, and this is a realistic rather than hypothetical example, that's meant to give poor children uh, free nutritious school meals, and if a lot of them aren't signing up, uh, the behavioral remedy is pretty clear. If you know who's eligible, automatically enroll them. And so to switch the default rule from opt-in, where they have to sign up and get in, to opt-out, where they're automatically in unless they don't want to be, that can have a huge impact. And we know that the result is um, many millions of American children are benefiting from meals uh, to which they would otherwise not be exposed, just and the behavioral intervention work. So for governments, whether the problem is poverty or um, use of loans in a way that causes issues or health problems, cigarette smoking, diabetes, um, uh, failure to take medicines, which uh, uh, could help people, mental illness and chronic pain, uh, the behavioral remedies uh, give us a, a set of tools uh, by which we can really make some progress. The opt-in, opt-out, opt-out idea is a very, very interesting one. It's also, as you noted, very widely applicable. Like, actually, one that I think cuts very cleanly across a lot of countries is organ donation. And I know quite a number of jurisdictions now have opt-out rather than opt-in for organ donation. Can you explain a bit of just the, I guess, the thinking behind the deviation from rationality and how, and how that, that fixes it? Yeah, so um, first question is why, uh, if people opt in, are participation rates typically so much lower than if people are allowed to opt out in circumstances in which both opting in and opting out are really easy? So the remarkable thing is that you sometimes get a massive difference between opt-in and opt-out, even when it's basically pushing a button to opt-in or opt-out. I think there are two major reasons. One is that inertia is an extremely powerful force. So I have on my computer at home, uh, I have a, in the office, I mean, we have a, a automatic setting of one, uh, only one side of the page gets printed on. And I love double-sided printing because it's less paper use, which is good. And it's also uh, easier to carry around. But uh, the default setting is not double-sided, single-sided, and uh, I haven't bothered to change it. That's inertia. So inertia is really important. If people are asked, you want to opt in to something, they often just won't, even if they wouldn't mind it, because they're thinking about other things. The other point is the default rule can have some information in it. So if you're automatically enrolled, let's say, in a health program, you might think, oh, this is probably a good program for me if I'm automatically enrolled. And you would opt out only if you have particular reason to think it's not in your interest. And both inertia and information, when they're put together, that can be a really powerful signal. Now, for organ donation in particular, 
um, apparently a number of people don't opt in because it's kind of creepy to think, you know, I'm opting in to allowing my organs to be used by another person. Maybe I will think about something else. So the opt-in rates are often low. Under opt-out, people think first, oh, uh, I guess the government is thinking that this will save lives, and do I really want not to help people whose lives can be saved when I don't really need my organs anymore? And people are also thinking, do I really want to bother to take the trouble to opt out uh, when that's also a creepy thing? So the massive difference between opt-in and opt-out for organ donation as an explanation of roughly that kind. Whether we should have opt-in or opt-out for organ donation, that's extremely controversial, and I think reasonable people differ. Uh, opt-out would, in many countries, save lives, because you'd have more organs available, uh, but it would also run up against severe moral concerns in some countries, where people think, gosh, if my organs are going to be used, it should better be because... I explicitly decided that rather than because of some kind of accident that I didn't opt out. So that makes it uh, not the easiest one. There's a third alternative to opt in and opt out, which is, uh, uh, let's call it prompted choice, where when you get your driver's license, um, you are asked, do you want your organs to be used? And prompted choice has some advantages because it... Um, uh, overcomes inertia, you're there and being asked, and because it doesn't produce a situation where people's or organs are being used when they haven't indicated that that was their preference. So what what are some examples of passive nudges? Like you, you, you noted that like when you own a supermarket, you have to put the oranges somewhere. So it seemed no matter where you put them, you're making a decision. You may not be thinking, oh, if I put them on the floor, uh, kids will reach them whereas I put them up high mums and dads will reach them but are there, are there aspects you can talk about where we do this without thinking and it does have an impact well I came into the Sydney airport uh, yesterday and there's plenty of nudging about you know uh what you declare and where you declare. So as you land in Sydney, uh, there are things that are said and there are other things that could be said or there's silence that could be used uh, with respect to declaring stuff. And the little film provided, I bet by the Australian government, but maybe it's by private actors about uh, what to declare, it's full of nudges and, you know, very clear, this, 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 this. And it could have been, you know, much more aggressive and uh, provocative. It would scare people more or it could have, there could have been nothing which would have just been confusing, or there could have been something shorter and more abstract. And once you land in any airport, there are nudges to try to get you to go in various places. Uh, I noticed that before you get to the passport control place, you go through all these stores. That's a nudge to buy some stuff. Uh, if you had no store, that would also be a nudge, an anti-consumption nudge. That might be good, it might be bad, but you have to have either stores or no stores. So the structure of an airport is like that. Any uh, city streets will have signage, or had better have signage, and the signage uh, will nudge. Sometimes it'll be accompanied by a prohibition. Sometimes it'll be warnings and reminders and such. And there could be silence about that, about some of the things that are... Um, 
are mandatory, uh, there could be silence on that, or the things that are optional that are encouraged, there could be silence on that. If you deal with uh, the health system, you're going to be nudged in lots of ways, uh, both about where to go and when to go and how to go, and also about what to do given uh, you know, whatever your health status is, um, great or less than great. So I think one of the you know, really exciting things about the last uh, period is much more awareness on the part of so many people of the ways in which small features of design actually have a large impact on outcomes. What are some of the limitations of nudging? And I, and I don't even mean, let's say, ethical, but just more, you know, a pre-commitment device on tax forms, which is something that we were talking about last year, as a way of increasing revenue and getting people to declare more of their income. Like, how much of the how much on the needle do th- things like that, do little design choices, actually move? Like, how does it, does it move the needle? Well, I'll describe a few cases where the impact's been very large. So automatic enrollment in savings programs in countries other than Australia, which has a very... Um, a robust savings system, but in countries like Denmark and the United Kingdom and the United States, automatic enrollment has a massive effect in participation rights. There's data, recent data, involving uh, parental use of educational technology that is really helpful to the kids. Uh, automatic enrollment produces a 96% usage rate, and opt-in produces a 1%. Uh, rate. So that's phenomenal difference. Yeah, in the 90s compared to near zero, opt-in versus automatic enrollment. So that's one where you can really do big stuff. So default rules tend to be the champion and their their effects are often, not always, very significant. Uh, If we're worried about, let's say, uh, the problem of climate change, um, you can do some significant things through information and default rules, but we're not going to get the climate change problem under control with with those. Uh, we need some things like, you know, regulations and corrective taxes. Uh, the problem of air pollution generally, which Beijing and Los Angeles, to name two, are really suffering from, uh, nudges can be helpful. Uh, but as you say, they're needle-moving rather than problem-solving. Um, the problem of which some cities face of uh, of uh, crime, uh, those nudges can be helpful for that. But you you need more. You need uh, active law enforcement or working on social norms in a way that can use nudges, but not just nudges. So one way to think of it is that. Uh, an emphasis on nudges broadens the set of instruments that governments have by which to tackle their problems. But sometimes uh, the less intrusive instrument, that is the the nudge, is uh, not up to the task. So from a government point of view, you just know that it really does expand the tool set. But how should governments go about thinking about using this tool set? Well, one way, that's a great question, so thank you. One, one way to do it is for a, a government office. It, it can't have as its job highway safety or health care. And it, it can think, what are the set of problems that our citizens are facing? And ask, um, could a nudge instrument be helpful in addressing that problem? 
So when I was in our government, uh, I didn't think, you know, let's start nudging everything. That would have probably gotten me fired. Uh, I thought instead, what are the problems that citizens are facing and what instruments would be helpful for them? So more problem-centered than Mm theory-driven. And if you think that your job is uh, something involving, let's say, cigarette smoking and reducing it, now you have a sense of the tools, and these might be useful. So, so that's one approach. Another approach, which I know Australia is one of the pioneers of, is to have a behavioral group of people who have specialized expertise, both with the ideas and with how to run experiments to see what works, and to have the behavioral team uh, working with people who have substantive authority uh, to try to figure out what would be a helpful mechanism. My impression is that the behavioral teams have a few advantages. One is they can do experiments and learn things. That's fantastic. Uh, Another is that they can be a centralized repository of uh, thinking, and that's great. Another is in some places, and I think Australia is one, they have very strong support from the center of the government, so that gives them uh, uh, credibility. Uh, The advantage of the other approach, that is the department or the person with legal authority is that they aren't merely, and I put merely, I guess I should put it in quotations because it's uh, it's true in one sense, it's not true in another sense. They don't merely find out what's true. They can just do stuff and uh, they can implement a policy. And in my role in government, we didn't do experiments. Uh, we didn't have the capacity for that, but we did have the capacity to take uh, existing evidence-based policies that were nudges and thus do them. And the track record uh, is, is good and didn't split people across partisan lines. So if you have people with line authority, as it's called, that, that has some advantages too. Castellan thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you. Great pleasure. Professor Sunstein's book is called Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth and Happiness. Thanks for listening to this episode of Speaking With. Don't forget to subscribe and leave any comments or suggestions for future topics on iTunes and the Apple Podcasts app.